Co-Selling Hero, hosted by real estate veteran Tom Didion. Each week, we break down today's ultra-hot home seller's market and give you the tips, tricks, and guidance to navigate the selling process and get the most out of selling your home. Proudly presented by the Tom Didion team. Let's jump in. Greetings and moyen, everybody. Welcome back to the Home Selling Hero podcast. I am your host, Tom Didier, and I have a special guest today. I have Tom Larson from the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Tom is the current executive vice president and chief lobbyist of the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Um, ironically, it looks like you started in 1996, which ironically is the year I became a Wisconsin Realtor, so that's pretty mm. cool. That explains that I think we have some similarities. I started with hair, and <laughs> I'm pretty sure you started with hair, right? As did I. Yes, and, you're right. And, and now we look the same, so go figure. So, Tom, why don't you take the first uh, 60 seconds just to kind of uh, tell my audience, which I think I had told you is like, seems to be a good combination of consumers, meaning buyers and sellers, people interested in real estate. I also have a lot of our fellow practitioners that are realtors that kind of hit me up for questions and, and tell me. So you are speaking to, uh, you know, your audience are the people that you talk to all the time, but just take a few seconds to introduce yourself. I'm Tom Larson, the Executive Vice President of WRA. And I'm also uh, responsible for the advocacy uh, operation at the Wisconsin Realtors Association, which includes the uh, lobbying, it includes uh, the legal advocacy, uh, and also uh, includes the political uh, stuff that we do as well. So it gets us involved in a lot of different activities that uh, benefit both realtors and property owners directly. So I love what I do. I love who I work for. It was uh, when I uh, graduated from uh, law school, there was no question that I was going to go into uh, real estate. It was really uh, has been my passion since I was young. I started out um, mowing lawns and doing uh, construction work in my uh, summers after uh, uh, after high school. And I've always been uh, in the real estate world. And so finding myself working with the Realtors Association working on issues that are important to the real estate industry and to property owners is not a far stretch of uh, where my passions lie. So I am very happy uh, about my career choice and who I get to work for and who I get to work with. Well, that's interesting because I actually didn't know. That was going to be one of my questions was after law school, how did you end up here? But actually during law school, you were kind of real estate focused even in law school, huh? As a kid, uh, my job was mowing lawns, and uh, uh, my dad was an architect, and I got a couple of jobs through high school and after college uh, working in construction, um, everything from laying blacktop to pouring concrete to repairing fences and shingles. And I actually got my real estate license while I was in college and then worked for a developer uh, acquiring and building uh, multifamily housing in Wisconsin, Illinois, and California. So you went to University of Wisconsin for your undergrad, and you went to Marquette for law school. So who do you cheer for when Marquette plays Wisconsin? Yeah, good question. Uh, I cheer for the winner, uh, whoever wins, and so I'm covered either way. But uh, no, I, I, gave, uh, I gave more years to Wisconsin, but more tuition dollars right. to Marquette. Um, but because I live in, uh, live in Madison, uh, I, I tend to root for the Badgers uh, most of the time, but again, when they play uh, Marquette, it's uh, it's a coin flip for me. I win either way. So talk to us a little bit about, you're a lawyer, but you're the lawyer for the Wisconsin Realtors. You're also the chief lobbyist for the Wisconsin Realtors. So 
you don't, I would say, you, you know, you don't do, uh, you don't re- represent people in civil or criminal matters at all. Um, tell our listeners what you do as the chief lobbyist for the Realtors. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, and I often get asked that a lot. Like uh, at cocktail parties, people say, "So, what does a lobbyist do?" Right. And when I tell them, I get one of two reactions. First is they often have this uh, look on their face, like uh, they got an upset stomach, like they might vomit, and they often walk away um, in, in disgust, usually. And second is uh, they often ask me about politics. And sometimes they want to go into uh, a lot of different political issues, which aren't right to talk about at a cocktail party. But uh, so they're either disgusted or they're intrigued by it. And it's it's a, a profession that not many people know about. Even my own mother doesn't know what the heck I do. So um, it, it is it is a common question. So as a as a lobbyist, my uh, primary responsibility is to educate lawmakers about uh uh, real estate issues and how it impacts uh, property owners, how it impacts the real estate industry. In the Wisconsin legislature, we have 133 different uh, legislators, uh, 99 in the Assembly and 33 in the Senate. And they're all they're from all walks of life. They're from you know northern Wisconsin, southeastern Wisconsin. They come from different backgrounds. Lawmakers are are often generalists. They know a lot, or they know a little about a lot of issues, but they're not specialists in any uh, given area. So whenever there's an issue that pops up that has an impact on the real estate industry, they often want to know from the experts to explain how this might impact uh, property ownership or housing affordability or how it uh, may affect elder, the elderly on fixed incomes. And that's where we go in and educate them about a particular issue and how it impacts uh primarily their constituents. They want to know how it affects their district. So we have to uh, be knowledgeable about uh, economics, the law, public policy, you name it. You know, you think about what the world would be like uh, without lobbyists. A lot of people think that would be a better world. Everybody has lobbyists, almost every single interest, whether it's uh, the hospitals, whether it's the funeral directors, whether it's the Boys and Girls Club, you name it. There are uh, lobbyists that uh, represent those interests and try to, again, educate lawmakers. And when you think about the ownership of property, for example, and how it's regulated uh, at the local, state, and federal level, every single aspect of it is regulated by at least one level of government, uh, both you know, the financing of it, the appraisal of it, the uses of it, how you can market the property. Uh, you name it, there is at least one form of government that, that uh, uh, regulates almost every aspect of ownership. So trying to create a regulatory framework that allows the free use of property and the ability to buy and sell real estate is really what our primary focus is. Plenty to do. And I've always enjoyed saying that we are the realtor party, meaning that you know we don't necessarily support Republicans or Democrats, we support anybody that will support us kind of in our mission to make sure that home ownership is available for real estate ownership. I mean, home ownership too, but real estate, that real estate can be an investment for everybody. And um, I think, you know, 26 years, I've been doing it as long as you, and I think we've done a really good job. I would ask you to tell us, you've enjoyed a lot of victories over the years, meaning victories that have helped create laws or get rid of laws that, you know, benefit homeownership. If I had to ask you your top three victories in the last 26 years, which ones would you 
would you pull out and say these three things made a huge difference? Uh, that's a great question. We have had a lot of victories uh, in large part because uh, our issues are bipartisan. You know, whether it's uh, Republicans or Democrats, uh, they support home ownership. They support the ability to own and uh, buy real estate. So uh, we we usually get strong bipartisan support or unanimous, unanimous support for all of our issues. So picking three would be challenging, but I will give it a shot. Uh, one of the biggest victories is passing property tax levy limits in place in the state of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to the time that we imposed uh, strict levy limits in the state of Wisconsin, it was not uncommon to have double-digit increases every single year in property taxes. And we uh, imposed a uh, very strict levy limit that prevents local units of government from increasing property taxes at all, unless they go to referendum. Uh, Now, there's some exceptions to that that allows them to increase by the uh, rate of net new construction, but it's a 0% increase unless you go to referendum. And some people think that's no way to run government. Uh, You shouldn't have to go to the public to increase uh, levy limits, increase property taxes. Um, You should, that's what you elect your, uh, that's what you elect people to do who who are representative of, uh, of the public. But it is still very popular. 80% 80% of local referenda pass, and we just did some statewide polling and asked the public about this, and property taxes are still the most onerous tax in the state of Wisconsin, and uh, over 70% of the public said they liked having uh, referenda in order to increase their property taxes. So it still remains very popular with uh, uh, property owners throughout the state of Wisconsin. The second, I think the second biggest victory would be a uh, piece of legislation that we passed um, uh, just last session. And it was in response to a Supreme Court case that said that um, owners of waterfront property that uh, is adjacent to a flowage, that these property owners do not have riparian rights. This was a Supreme Court case that looked at two different types of property owners, those that own the bed of a lake and those that were upland and said that uh, the upland property owners did not have a right to place a pier that touched the uh, bed of the lake because it was owned by somebody else. They also said that they didn't have riparian rights, which include things like placing riprap or other things that uh, normal waterfront property owners have. Well, we have 900 different flowages throughout the state of Wisconsin and this Supreme Court case invalidated the property rights of thousands of waterfront property owners in the state of Wisconsin. And there are some large flowages in, in the state that aren't called flowages. They're called lakes, and people wouldn't know that they were flowages uh, unless they did their research. Big lakes like Lake Wisconsin, Lake Delton are all flowages. A lot of the uh, northern Wisconsin lakes are flowages. They're rivers that are dammed up to create, uh, to create lakes. And so we were able to pass legislation with unanimous support that overturned the Supreme Court case and first restored the rights of these waterfront property owners uh, along flowages. And second, they protected the rights of all other waterfront property owners by statute. In the past, these waterfront property rights were protected only by common law through the courts. And you could have uh, another future court that reversed 
the lower court's decision, this is a, a kind of a theoretical concern, that could have resulted in an invalidation or a uh, elimination of those waterfront property rights. So protecting them by statute, I think it provides a greater level of protection for waterfront property owners in the state. So that was, uh, that was the other big change. I think lastly was uh, a reversal of a U.S. Supreme Court decision. And that was a case that went, uh, again, all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, out of Wisconsin, Murphy, Wisconsin, that uh, involved two adjacent lots uh, along the St. Croix Riverway. And St. Croix County adopted an ordinance that said uh, if you owned two adjacent lots, that you were required to merge those lots together and you could not treat them as two separate lots and you could not sell uh, one of the lots. So they, uh, they prohibited you from building on the separate lots or selling them separately and it had a huge impact on uh, property owners throughout the state of Wisconsin. Many people had owned these separate lots uh, with the hopes of uh, selling them off uh, at a future date as kind of a, a 401k, a retirement program. And uh, when this case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, they said that was not an unconstitutional taking. It was a split decision. And we were able to convince the legislature, again, with the unanimous support, that uh, counties and local governments should not be allowed to pass regulations to effectively uh, eliminate the development rights of property owners who may own two or more adjacent lots. Right. So those would be three off the top of my head that were big victories for property owners in the state of Wisconsin and the real estate industry. Have a house to sell, but not sure who to trust when it comes to getting the best deal and leveraging the current market? Trust the experts at the Tom Didier team. With over a quarter century of selling Milwaukee, Tom and his team of real estate experts are here to ensure that you get every penny you deserve out of selling your home. No matter where you live in the dairy state, Put one of Wisconsin's top real estate teams to work for you in selling your home and making the most of your real estate investment. Looking to buy a house instead? Tom and his team have you covered here as well, helping you craft and perfect the offer on your dream home. Visit SellingMilwaukee.com to find out how much your home could be worth and connect with the team to make your next real estate transaction a dream. Now, back to the show. So, levy limits, riparian rights for flowages, and the right for government not to take away the right for people to develop their properties. Those are safe to say that besides those three victories, there are countless, I don't know, would you say there's 20? In a good year, you have 20 victories? Well, some years. Some years we have uh, 20 or yeah. 30. Other other times we have five or six. And... Uh, you know, it's um, sometimes the five or six, the years that you have five or six are more gratifying than the years that you have 20 or 30. It right. all depends on how hard you had to work and what you're able to accomplish. So we just wrapped up 2022 and uh, a couple episodes ago, I did my kind of wrap up, which was to summarize saying that the state of Wisconsin, you know, the number of sales were way down, uh, but the prices for those sales were way up. And they're, they were almost, uh, they almost mimicked each other. I, I was using generality saying, you know, the number of sales were down 10 to 20 percent and the values were up 10 to 20 percent um what would be your bold prediction for 2023 we can listen back on this in 12 months and 
listen to yourself. Uh, anything you care to share or predict um, about what we're going to see for uh, Wisconsin real estate this year? I think we're going to continue to have a strong real estate market. And that is going to be driven uh, by a lack of supply. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a significant housing shortage in the state. We have produced 15 to 20,000 too few housing units each and every year for over a decade after the Great Recession. We have two of our largest population demographics competing for housing. You have millennials that are coming into the housing market. You have the baby boomers that are living longer and aging in place, not uh, selling their homes and and creating inventory. And uh, that's not going to change anytime soon. So I think supply and demand is going to continue to drive a strong housing market. But I think interest rates uh, rising to the level that they're at, and they're still at very good rates. You know, hopefully they'll be at the five and a half or below range, but that's a still a great rate. Uh, I think you're going to have a strong demand for housing. You're just not going to have that crazy demand that you had when interest rates were at uh, maybe two, two and a half percent. So rather than getting 20 offers on every listing, you might get two or three. Which is still a good position to be in if you're a seller. Um, the one predict, not prediction, the, the hope that I have, or, or a little bit of a prediction for this year, is that if the interest rate, meaning the 30-year fixed, which everyone uses as a, as a guide, if that does fall below 6%, I was envisioning that that might be enough to get some people off the sidelines. Because like, there's people that are always trying to time the market. They're saying, I'm not paying 6.75% you know, when I'm sitting in a 3%. But uh, I was hoping and thinking and predicting that if we can get the 30-year fixed back below six, that might be enough to get them off the sideline, maybe create some inventory and say, all right, 5.5 isn't too bad. So got any thoughts on that? I think you're right. I think in hearing from uh, the National Association of Realtors Economists, he feels that that five and a half percent is really the sweet spot, that that's really where interest rates uh, should be at. And he thinks, you know, once the Fed uh, gets a better control of inflation, that's where interest rates are going to be. And I think you're right. I think that's going to increase inventory by um, encouraging some people who are currently homeowners that don't want to sell because they don't want to give up their uh, artificially low interest rate. But they may need to sell because they're at a certain stage in their life and they need a different house that may be more friendly to their lifestyle. And getting interest rates at about 5.5% may encourage them to, uh, to sell and move into their uh, next type of housing. Yeah, here's hoping because that, that inventory problem is really, uh, it is what it is, but it's, it's supply and demand, and there is a lot of demand and so little supply. We've been playing catch-up for so long now, and I don't think any of us knew it from 2008 to 2014 that we were all you know, not keeping up, but here we are in 2023, and now it's easy to say, man, we should have been building. Let me ask you a question. So have interest rates had a bigger chilling effect on sellers looking to sell or on buyers looking to buy? Both, but the buyers don't have a choice, right? I mean, and like I just said, everyone wants to time the market perfectly. I can I can name and think of a handful of buyers that we had that told us we're out, we're not, we're not competing in this craziness and we're also not paying 6.75. Um, so there, there's a fraction of those buyers for sure, but I think it's more impactful because the sellers that are wanting to move they're the ones that psychologically are stuck, I think. I see them sitting in their 3% mortgage rate, and they're just hesitant. And I guess it, it's going to come down to how bad do they want 
to upgrade or move or you know um, make that next move so it's a little bit of everything it's just so different than you know we've never seen this market right i mean if 2095 to 2005 was just up 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 and then 2006 in my experience was just kind of a flattened out and it was in 2007 we were looking in the rearview mirror going holy crap i think i think i just saw that house sell for 10,000 less than they paid for it which was shocking to us and then you know we dealt with that for a while so i don't know i think it's more psychological than it is actual if if that makes sense cuz like we said historically speaking 7% is a good interest rate you know in 1994 i think they were about 10% so um i think it just going to take some time for the consumers to realize that Hey, five, six percent, that's that's pretty reasonable. And I think like you said, once they realize there's not gonna be a big price correction in housing, right. and a lot of them are waiting for uh, prices to drop 10 or 20%, and because of the supply and demand issues, that's just not gonna happen. And I think once they realize that, uh, they're gonna get back into the market and um, you know find that uh, house they're looking for. Yeah, yeah. When I was doing my, when I was Googling you, everybody should Google themselves. Um, I saw on a website that you, it shows you as a licensed lobbyist. I didn't, I don't, I guess I didn't know that lobbyists were licensed. What is entailed? How many licensed lobbyists, without looking it up, do we have in Wisconsin? And what are the credentials to become licensed lobbyists? Are those, you have to go to law school for that? Or um, can anybody be a licensed lobbyist? Yeah, good question. Um, well, there are several hundred lobbyists in the state of Wisconsin, and what's in lobbying and campaign finance, I'm going to sweep that in as well, are heavily regulated in Wisconsin, heavily regulated in the sense that uh, Wisconsin requires a lot of disclosures. And so the, you're required to obtain a lobbyist license if uh, you have five or more contacts with a legislator on a particular issue and you are being paid. Uh, by somebody to do that. So they want you to become licensed so that you uh, have to disclose and record your time and so that you are subject to campaign finance uh, restrictions, which um, as lobbyists, we have to track every hour, every minute that we communicate with a lawmaker and we have to record it and we have to identify what we are talking to them about. And we record that time, and it's available to the public so that the public can see who's trying to influence who or who's talking to who about particular issues. And we have very strict campaign finance uh, laws and restrictions on lobbyists. Lobbyists are prohibited from giving anything of value to lawmakers subject to the campaign finance laws. So uh, they're pretty strict with respect to state assembly I think you're able to give $1,000 during a campaign cycle every two years, and to the state Senate, it's up to $2,000. Those are very strict requirements, and we are not able to buy somebody a beer. Hmm. We're not able to buy dinner, lunch. You can't even send flowers if somebody's uh, mother passes away because those are considered um, to be items of value, and they count towards your contributions uh, contribution limits and they have to be fully disclosed so that everybody can see what type of thing of value they've given to state lawmakers. Very different than other states. Illinois, for example, you can buy lawmakers dinner, uh, you can buy them drinks, you can take them out golf, golfing, you can do all those things and it's not reported. And we actually, well, obviously love our law because 
it really takes the pressure off of lobbyists being encouraged to buy lawmakers dinner or buy them drinks. Now, we always remind lawmakers, you can buy us anything you want, but <laughs> we can't. So uh, yeah. we think it's actually a, a great way to make sure that uh, the lobbying industry is transparent and that everybody knows who's giving what to lawmakers and making sure that there aren't under kind of under the table deals going on. Yeah. So no educational qualifications are required to be a to be a licensed lobbyist. Just that number of contacts, number of conversations with the legislator that revolves around a certain topic. Yep. You have to pay a fee. I think it's two hundred and fifty dollars if you are representing an individual client, and four hundred dollars if you are representing multiple clients, and that's in a legislative cycle every two years. I did not know that. So in Wisconsin, and hopefully I'm saying this correct, you know, the Wisconsin realtors have a very good reputation um, among the National Association of Realtors. And in Wisconsin, realtors can represent buyers and sellers in a transaction without the use of an attorney. In some states, it's actually a statute, correct, that uh, buyers and sellers have to have uh, an attorney representing them. How many, how many states... Because um, I've been talking to some other um, realtors through the podcast, and they're surprised to hear that you know we're not an attorney state that we can actually go to closing. And, and I would never tell anybody they don't need or shouldn't get an attorney. But the point I'm trying to make is that the realtors have done a pretty good job in Wisconsin of representing their clients. Um, how many states do require the use of an attorney? If you have any idea, there's about a handful of states in Wisconsin. I think Georgia's one. Illinois has some version of it that I don't know if they mandate an attorney, but attorneys are used much more often. And one of the reasons why in, in Wisconsin it's not as popular to have an attorney, first of all, we have state approved forms. We have state approved forms that are created by a forms council that are uh, drafted to protect both the interests of buyers and sellers. And uh, Wisconsin uh, real estate licensees and realtors have a uh, they have a limited carve out from the uh, practice of law regulations that allow them to complete a state approved form and i think it's a credit to our forms council and the quality of our forms that allow for a practitioner a real estate practitioner to complete these forms because they're so balanced in the interest of both uh, buyers and sellers. And in other states, I think the quality of their forms are not as good and they require more attorney involvement than our state does. I would argue that a lot of the credit could go to you and your staff at WRA for the last 26 years too. You guys uh, you guys run a tight ship and are, are pretty well respected. We have a great team of attorneys that do a superb job of continuing to educate our members and keeping them at the center of the transaction and making sure that they are well-versed on all the law changes and uh, are equipped with all the tools necessary to service their customers and clients. Well, you guys do a good job of that. So 2023, you, you guys are looking for some more victories. What are the, just, there's a million, not a million of them, but I'm guessing there's probably 50 things on your docket right now that, you know, you guys are looking at. Um, what are the top two that you think this year um, your team is going to tackle in terms of uh, the importance? Yeah, one of the things that we're looking at is trying to come up with a, uh, it's called a residential development infrastructure loan program that would uh, allow for the state to issue loans 
for the development of infrastructure related to residential development. One of the challenges uh, for developers is getting financing for new development. And infrastructure tends to be one of the most expensive costs that are ultimately added to the cost of a home. So coming up with a low interest loan program through the state will hopefully uh, lead to an increase in supply of new, uh, of new housing and hopefully reduce the cost given that the uh, financing is much less. So that's gonna be one of our, our key initiatives. And we're also looking to uh, streamline the development approval process. One of the things that uh, developers often run into when proposing a new development is upset neighbors, mm. NIMBYs, yep. the not in my backyard group. Uh, and these are in cases where the municipality has identified that they uh, want to have housing through their zoning and planning process. So they've said, we want to have housing, we want it located in this, in this area. The municipality is supportive of it, but then they go through the public hearing process and the neighbors come out in opposition because they like that farm field as open land mm -hmm. and they don't want change and they don't want new development. Well, the problem is uh, you're not gonna get the new housing to uh, supply the workers, to fill the job openings, to keep the employers in the area uh, because they need to compete with employers around the world. Uh, so. Um, we're trying to create more certainty and predictability in the development process and limit the role of NIMBYs to uh, either delay or to add significant cost to the development process. Those are two initiatives under the umbrella of uh, increased inventory that we're working on. That's one thing I've seen in my practice is I've seen transactions not happen from developers that you know, they say that it doesn't pencil out. They look at an opportunity and they can't make it work. It just, you know, they do their pro forma, look at the infrastructure costs, like you said, and they said, this isn't, this isn't, there's no, there's no advantage to doing this. And of course, developers get a bad rap. I don't know why, but the general public thinks that developers are rich people. Um, for the most part, they're just business people trying to bring us a product, you know, that to give people a place to live. But I have seen both of those things you talk about. Number one, the infrastructure costs are, are very, you know, they've exploded. Number two, um, there seems to be a lot of um, opposition. And it, what's frustrating is that sometimes it seems that it's the same people that are opposing everything. And by that, I mean that if a development does get approved and they're high end, you know, the, the the sentiment seems to be, oh, you're just catering to, you know, rich people. Okay, well, um, then we propose workforce housing, uh, affordable housing, and the same people say, ah, you're bringing in, you know, um, bringing in people to our community we don't want here. So it's been kind of frustrating to see that from both sides. And it's like, well, if you if you oppose everything, we're not going to grow. We're, we're going to become very stagnant. And, yeah, it seems that municipalities really need tools to compete with each other to kind of grow and as we all know, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but the population in Wisconsin is not growing at anywhere near the pace it used to be growing in, the, say, the 80s, right? Yeah, and I think the population is actually um, uh, growing at single digits. In certain years, it was declining, but I think now we are at least uh, uh, on the positive side. And there's a need for us to continue to grow. Yeah. And not only not only to bring in uh, workers to grow businesses, but you have to sometimes bring in workers to keep businesses 
And uh, again, if businesses can't compete with uh, you know their competitors, they're going to close their doors. They're going to move elsewhere. We're going right. to lose jobs. And uh, housing is a critical component of that. You can't, again, you say it over and over, we don't have the housing to attract the workers to fill the jobs. And there has never been a stronger connection between housing and economic development as there is today. So that is going to be our primary focus. And the thing to remember, too, is that we're in divided government. We have a Democratic governor. We have a right. very conservative Republican legislature. And getting these uh, you know, different parties to agree on things isn't always easy. And so you need to come up with something that you can get uh, bipartisan support for. And the good thing about um, housing, especially housing inventory, is there seems to be a broad consensus that that's one of uh, the priorities for the state. It's just getting everybody to agree on what those possible solutions might be. There's so many subjects we could go into. I was I was gonna I'm contemplating asking you your opinion on on workforce housing and how we how we tackle that problem. It seems like there's no easy solution, but I guess that's my question to you as far as workforce housing in Wisconsin. How do we how do we go about fixing that? Yeah, well, it's uh, there's no easy solution. Uh, one big part of that solution is inventory. The best way to find housing that's uh, more affordable to all income brackets is to have uh, more inventory. The less inventory we have, the higher the cost, and the people that sque- get squeezed out are kind of that uh, lower incomes and the lower uh, middle incomes. And workforce housing is often defined as housing that goes from anywhere from 60% or 80% of area median income up to 100%. And we've got a lot of programs at the federal level to provide housing for people with lower incomes than that range, but not much in that uh, workforce housing range. And these are usually the starter homes. These are uh, homes that uh, our older citizens are moving into when they're on fixed incomes or when they're retired. We don't have a lot of that housing. and. We need that housing. It's really important as part of the whole life cycle to have that type of housing. And um, we need an increase in supply and we need to do it through regulatory reform. We need incentives like tax credits for developers to kind of close that gap between housing, what their actual housing costs are to develop that house and what people can afford. We need, uh, like I said, infrastructure tools, things like tax increment financing. We need the loan programs that we're talking about. So we're looking at a whole variety of different solutions because there's no silver bullet in this. It's going to take some time to address our workforce housing needs, and uh, hopefully we'll get the support we need at the state level and the local level. It's It occurs at the local level as well by streamlining development uh, regulations and expediting permitting processes. We talked about NIMBYs and their opposition to new housing. Even if they don't defeat a housing proposal, but they delay it by months or years, that all adds to the cost of housing. And so we need to to, uh, go through our approval processes much quicker so that uh, we can get that housing developed at a lower cost. I always use the term speed of government because in my 26 years in the business, the speed of government is the speed of government. (laughs) 
there is usually no uh, no reason for them to move faster than they need to. Great. With that, audience, uh, we will sign off. Always use a local lender. It should make your transaction go a lot smoother. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Home Selling Hero. For more, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and connect with Tom across LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have a question about selling your home or buying your next one, reach out to Tom at tom at tomdidier.com or call or text him directly at 414-881-3290. Home Selling Hero is a production of Tom Didier Real Estate in partnership with Westport Studios. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any information presented during the course of discussion is presented as reliable under the laws of the state of Wisconsin. Be sure to consult a local agent in order for any nuances where you may live.